I don't know about you, but there is a sense of awe that often comes over me when we're worshiping. A sense that I don't want to stop. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes we'll go right into some time of prayer to allow us to stay in that place, you know, and to, and to just relax in the Lord and rest in Him. Well, there are other times like tonight where I feel like this, this awe that comes with worship needs to spill over into the reading of God's Word and the study of His Word. I remind you, we don't stop worshiping just because the guitars are put down. We worship with the Word. We glorify God even as we see the marvelous things He does and we talk about these things and and consider them. We declare His glory and His greatness. So we continue right into the Word tonight. The last chapter of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 66. Thanksgiving weekend, nine months ago, we opened up this amazing book, still full from the abundance of the holiday meal, at least I was, and the preponderance of the leftovers that we were cramming down our gullets. We don't use the word gullet enough, I thought that would be appropriate for tonight. But we immediately understood and saw in the book of Isaiah that we were not the only ones who had had enough. God was fed up. That's how the book starts. In fact, if if you'll turn back to chapter 1 and keep your finger in chapter 66, take a look as a reminder where we began nine months ago in this study because it has a contrast to where we're going tonight. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11 The Lord says, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me? Modern day equivalent, what are your many church services to me? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams. Modern day translation, I've had enough of your communion services. And of the fat of fed cattle. Modern translation, I've had enough of your potlucks. Out of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no more. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. You see, that's the problem. It's not communion services that are a problem for the Lord. And it's not worship services that bother the Lord. It's not even potlucks. What bothers the Lord is when we bring all these things together before Him, but our hearts are somewhere else. When there is no passion behind the worship when it is all a matter of rope, when we're just playing the game. God hates that. We know He does because we saw how much it infuriated Him with Israel, our prime example across history, and now in the church, we have opportunity to either do the same or to be different. To bring our hearts to the Lord, real and authentic, broken sometimes, messed up other times, fallen other times, and yet coming before Him and saying, Lord Jesus, we believe in You for Your promises. And we receive your grace and your mercy. Forgive us, sanctify us, purify us, and send us back with your Spirit upon us. See, he loves that. It's all a matter of relationship, right, Spence? And that's what he wants, and that's what he invites us to gather for. 
But he told Israel, I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. I'm just tired of the whole thing. He starts out in the prophecy of Isaiah, that very first chapter, fed up with their feasts. He ends up promising that those feasts will be redeemed, restored, and enjoyed like never before. In chapter 66. He begins in this place with fury at the rebellion of Israel and he ends up in the faithfulness that they would ultimately endure. The contrast from beginning to end is is stunning. He truly does take us on an entire journey. You can say the journey of, of God with His people Israel and that's very true. But He also takes us on the journey of the Christian walk. The life that is messed up before God. And he says, I'm tired of playing games. You want to get real with me? Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow in chapter 1, verse 18. Come to me. And then from then on, as we have tracked through Isaiah, the Christian life is a life of ups and downs and failures and mishaps and faithfulness. And and it's all kind of a mixed bag that we bring before the Lord in in our humanity. But he remains faithful consistently, chapter after chapter, just like day after day in our lives, faithful to His people, faithful to those who will simply be real with Him. And here we are at the end. We've seen the historical proof that God is more than able to keep His people standing. Historical proof, even against all odds. 185,000 Assyrians is a great example right there in the middle of the book, chapter 37, the historical section of the book. And that is there, not just for another history, he he repeats that history from, from previous books, but in that book, in Isaiah, he puts it there, I believe, for a reason to say, hey, I can keep my people. I've told you in poetry for the first several chapters, in the midsection there, Along about chapter 37, I'm giving you historical proof of it. I mentioned the 185,000 Assyrians because on Sunday I said 180,000 Assyrians. I was 5,000 off. It's actually 5,000 more than what I said. Not that it matters. I think once you get over about 160, it's a, it's a big number. you know. But just to correct that and to prove to you that even Pastor Rick can be wrong. Just kidding. Just kidding. We have read in this book and we have heard the nations judged by the Lord. We have seen in the prophecies of Isaiah, empires fall just as he said they would. We have witnessed here the fulfillment of extraordinary prophecies, even in our own generation, as we talked about on Sunday. All encompassed in one book. But best of all, and I hope you didn't miss this along the way, we have had a full prophetic account of the birth, the ministry, the death, the resurrection, and the return of Jesus, our Messiah. All over the book of Isaiah, truly the messianic prophets, full of Jesus. And that's why some people refer to the book of Isaiah as the gospel according to Isaiah. Again, nine months ago, I shared that with you. But by way of review, understand, in the New Testament, the New Testament writers refer more to the book of Isaiah than to all of the other Hebrew prophets combined. More to this book. 21 times Isaiah the prophet is himself named in connection with this book of prophecy from all sections of it, by the way, the middle, the end, the beginning, all of it. Isaiah is named as the prophet who wrote this book. 
And for Jesus, Isaiah was his go-to book. This is the one that he quoted more than any other prophet. Tonight, Jesus comes. In our study, that is. Perhaps otherwise, but we can hope and we can pray and look forward to that. But at least in the study, if nothing else, Jesus comes back. Isaiah sees Him coming in fiery judgment. Very different than the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. In Isaiah 66, when the Lord comes, He comes with the flames of judgment. He comes to slay the enemies of His people. In the end, He who is called Emmanuel, Mashiach, the shoot of the root of Jesse, the servant of the Lord, the Holy One of Israel... He will leave the final response to all that we've studied in your hands and in mine. And truly the question is, what are we going to do with this? Years ago I had an ongoing kind of debate with a fellow pastor. And it was about the whole idea of application. And he was very into application. He was saying you cannot preach a sermon without making sure at some point in the sermon, probably then you make application for the people. My debate was on the other side of things. I think the Spirit makes application. You know? No, you need to make application. I said, I'm not smart enough to make application. I remember laboring, trying to come up with applying things in in teachings years ago. And I finally gave it up. But the truth is, though there is application all over the pages of Isaiah, at this point, if you've been walking through that, even if you're only here for the first time listening tonight, what you hear tonight is yours to do with. You can walk out of here, close the book, and say, all right, what's next? Or, you can be affected. You can apply what you hear to your own heart, to your own life, to your own situation. You can be praying, and I invite you to do this all the way through the teaching tonight. Lord, show me what you have for me. Show me what you would convict me of. Show me, Lord, where I need comfort. Because the Lord knows what Pastor Rick can never seem to figure out. I'm going to give you a seven-point outline. And we're going to follow this through as we finish the book of the prophecies of Isaiah. But Lord Jesus, I just ask as we go through this tonight, you would bless the study of your word. While it is, Lord, a study, may it be more. I pray that your spirit would anoint the teaching tonight. Even as you anoint our hearts, the oil of gladness. And may we be encouraged by what we hear. And lifted up and strengthened. Father, for however long you have us on this planet, may we be strengthened in the walk and in our faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 66, verse 1. We begin, number one in our seven-point outline, with a heavenly perspective. A heavenly perspective. Verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then, er, where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. Now, don't take that all by itself. Take it in context. We have just come off the coattails of the prophecies of Isaiah 65. Remember last Wednesday night? The new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Isaiah 65, verse 17, the Lord says, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. That word create, bara, to make something out of nothing. 
And out of nothing, not out of the old crummy earth, but out of nothing, God's going to create the new earth. And the new heavens and the new Jerusalem. And we went through all of that last week. But here's the heavenly perspective that we need to see. With that understanding that He is going to create anew. The heavenly perspective is He makes everything from nothing. Now that may be simple, but understand the profound effect on us. Like a carpenter crafting an intricate solid wood throne and an ornate hand-carved footstool. God comes along in the first verse and a half of chapter 66 and He says, I made the heavens that way, like like a handcrafted throne. I made the earth like a hand-carved footstool. I did this. The fingers of my hands, the wisdom of my spirit made everything that you see and will see and gang, He's going to do it again. Better than before. On days like this, we look out And we have to recognize God is going to make it better than it has ever been. Brand new. And I'm so excited for that. That's going to be a remarkable thing. President Obama offended many small business owners a couple weeks back saying, you didn't build that. And it's been all over the news. If you've been watching these things, he's, he's taken it on the chin for that because small business owners are saying, excuse me, you didn't build that. I did. And he's trying to make a point you know, from his perspective. You didn't build that. The government helped you in some way. You were you know, enabled to do it. You didn't do it on your own. That was his words. In the past couple of days, he added something else to the mix. He said, if you were lucky enough, If you were fortunate enough, if you were blessed enough to be in the top 2%, I'm just saying you should pay a little more. Now, I'm not bringing that up to get into politics. I'm really not. But people are reacting and saying, wait a minute, lucky enough? Fortunate enough? Especially political conservatives are going ballistic saying, how about hardworking enough? You know? How about industrious enough? Now again... Stay with me, because this is not about politics. I'm far more concerned with spiritual things. And spiritually speaking, our president's right. We didn't build that. We didn't build that. You didn't come up with what you have. If you're a small business owner, guess what? You weren't lucky. You weren't fortunate, but you were blessed. He's right on that count. No, I'm not talking about, obviously, the government doing it, but we didn't build that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, what do you have that you did not receive? And he says, if you did receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? Why do you humans, I think the Lord would say, I know Paul says, why do we walk around acting like we've done such clever, wonderful things when we didn't do anything at all? Because the reality is the materials that we use to build something, God made. The ingenuity that we use to build something, God made. The talents, the gifts, all of it exists because God made it. And as he begins Isaiah 66, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where there is, or where then is a house that you could build for me? What could you build possibly for me? I built everything. 
I gave you everything that you have. Every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. James 1.17 So, spiritually speaking, as created beings, we have to recognize He's right. We didn't build that. Not Obama. God's right. It wasn't our work. And the truth is, I'm neither fortunate nor lucky. We talked about the table of fortune and the cup of fate, right, a couple weeks ago. It wasn't about gambling. We talked about that. I am not a fortunate man. I'm not a lucky guy. I am a blessed person. I'm a blessed son. Every good and perfect gift, everything that's going right in my life, everything that, that, that works from a righteous perspective, He did. And He did because He loves His children. If you've got anything good going on in your life, praise the Lord. He did that. And He brought it to you. That's the heavenly perspective. All I have, including what I gained through hard work, ingenuity, and unique creativity, I have because He blessed me. And not because I did it myself. He formed my personality. Some of you might go, ooh. <laughs> you know, and it's funny. My kids are right at that age where you know, they're evaluating people. You know, especially my, my middle kids. Well, that guy's a jerk. And I always say, even if I agree with him, I always say, <laughs> we probably shouldn't say that because you know that jerk was created by God. And as I used to say in youth ministry all the time, God doesn't make garbage. God doesn't make mistakes when He creates people. Oops, <laughs> that one God, well, I guess we'll just let Him go. You know, see what He does. He's kind of a jerk. <laughs> God doesn't do that. He puts the stamp of His creation on His creation. His, his own image. Which we'll talk about a little bit in a bit. He gave us every tool we have to become who and what we are. So praise Him. David did. David said in Psalm 8, verse 3, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him, and the son of man that you care for him? I'm a speck in the universe And yet, God chooses to call that speck a son. He looks at that speck and says, she's my daughter. Amazing. As I recognize His creative work, I gain the heavenly perspective. Where does that lead me? It leads me to a place of humility. It helps me become more contrite. In fact, when I really think about it, I start to tremble. Verse 2, continuing on, God says, But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Humble, contrite of spirit, trembling. Humble, the King James translation reads, To him that is poor and contrite of spirit. The New American Standard says humble. Different translations will either translate it humble or poor. Why is that? Because there are two Hebrew words... Ani, which means poor, and Aniv, which means humble. And in the Bible, they are used interchangeably to mean the same thing. Sometimes you might be of humble circumstances indicating, and we do the same thing, indicating you're poor. Or you might be poor of spirit, indicating that you're humble. And of course, that's how Jesus explained this Hebrew thinking. He says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And of course, in Luke 12, 32, Jesus said, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has chosen 
gladly to give you the kingdom. He wants to give you the kingdom. But the proud can't get there. you got to be humble. I look to the one, he says, who is humble and contrite of spirit. How do I get there? I mean, how do I really become poor in spirit? And I think the key, gang, is we learn to tremble at His Word. You tremble at His Word. I spent hours of my life growing up snoozing to His Word. Resting to His Word. Doodling to His Word and not trembling. When the Word is open, when we begin to hear what God has to say, it really should bring us to a place of trembling. When we are hearing His Word, the more I'm in His Word, I have discovered personally, the more I tremble before Him. When I see what He has done, what He is doing, what He's about to do. And the more I tremble, the more my spirit becomes poor, impoverished, humble. And that's a good thing. We want poor spirits. You want to strive for that, or maybe not strive for that, probably the wrong word. You want to rest in that. That before the Lord, we have nothing but humility to offer. No option but being contrite when we recognize how perfect He is and how not we are. Well, verse 3, he goes on and begins to talk about that problem of arrogance. He says, He who kills an ox is like one who slays a man. He who sacrifices a lamb is like the one who breaks a dog's neck. Sometimes I want to break my dog's neck. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. He who burns incense is like the one who blesses an idol as they have chosen their ways and their soul delights in their abominations, so I will choose their punishments. We come to the second part of our outline, a hypocritical problem. A hypocritical problem. What's going on there in verse 3 is God is contrasting biblical sacrifice, Levitical law sacrifice, with pagan rites. So every line, that's what you're getting a back and forth. He who kills an ox, well that's a biblical sacrifice. It's just like one who slays a man. Pagan ritual. He who sacrifices a lamb, biblical, is like one who breaks a dog's neck. That was a pagan ritual. He who offers a grain offering is like one who offers swine's blood. Biblical, pagan. He who burns incense, biblical, is like one who blesses an idol. What he's saying here is the people of Israel are projecting the height of hypocrisy. They're they're totally two-faced. Sacrificing for God, keeping all the festivals, doing all the right things as prescribed by law, and going out and committing heinous pagan rites. They're doing both. It's a major problem. And so in verse 4 he says, I will choose their punishments. That word punishment there is an interesting word in the Hebrew. It's ta'alulim. Ta'alulim is derived from the word alal, which means an overindulged child. Or we might say a spoiled brat. He's saying in essence... You're acting like a spoiled brat. Therefore, I'm going to treat you like a spoiled brat. I'm going to give you exactly what you're asking for. Now, a great example of that is when the people were starving for meat as they were traveling through the wilderness. And they said, we just want meat. We're so tired of this manna stuff. You know, manna, manna, manna for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. 
How many, you know, dishes can you make with manna? For manna bread, you know. For manna pancakes, manna cotti. I mean, there are a few. They're sick of this stuff. And he said, Lord, can't we just have some meat? And he goes, you want meat? Spoiled breasts? I will give you meat until it's coming out your nostrils. God's word says this. And he gives them so much quail, they are stuffed to the gills on this stuff. They are just... He treats a spoiled brat like a spoiled brat. I'm going to give you exactly what you want and let you get sick on it. I'm going to bring, what he's saying here, the very punishments that you hoped you could avoid by doing your pagan rituals. You see, they would go off and they would offer some pagan sacrifice thinking that would help their business become successful. And God would say, I'm going to make your business tank. I'm going to give you the result. What you're trying to get is going to fail miserably. I'm going to treat you like you're acting. Like overindulged children. We have a phrase for that. What goes around comes around. And God says, I'm going to let it come around. And it's going to catch you. If you're going to invest in idolatry, your dividends will be exactly what you most feared. Isaiah chapter 3, verse 1, he said, Woe to the wicked, it will go badly with him, for what he deserves will be done to him. Different with those who have faith. It's different with those who have grace. What we deserve is not done to us. We do not get what we deserve, we get His grace. And I'm so thankful for that. Verse 5, he continues, he says, Hear the word of the Lord. You who tremble... At his word. Your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for my name's sake, have said, Let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but they will be put to shame. A voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who is rendering recompense to his enemies. What happens here in verse 5? And in verse 6, is God now turns his gaze from warning these rebellious hypocrites in Israel. He now turns his gaze to those who are faithful of Israel, those who are following him in Isaiah's day specifically, but also at a latter date. And he says, those of you who are hanging with me, keep hanging in there. Because I'm going to deal with these rebellious ones. But I've got your back. The rest of the chapter now, God is going to deal with his people Israel, specifically with the righteous remnant of Israel, who are a despised people. Who are they despised by? Their own. There's coming a time for Israel, and this is kind of a stunning revelation for me, when the tribulation hits, when the world begins to sit under the wrath of God, do you realize, according to verses like this and in other places, that there will be Jewish people hammering Jewish people? That every, And it happens today. Every time a Jewish person gives their life to Jesus the Messiah, family has a problem with that. And in the tribulation period, when a large, a massive number of Jewish people will be turning their lives over to the Lord. Mike and I were talking about this this morning. How many Jewish people alive in the world today? Well, we know in the Nazi Holocaust, six million were murdered. That was a third of all living Jews on the planet. Which means at that time, there were 18 million Jews on planet Earth. We at this point are just about back to the number of Jews who were lost. That number's almost come back. So you figure 18 million Jews in the world, roughly, and I'm just throwing out numbers, don't quote me on these numbers, but if you average out about 18 million Jews, that means 6 million Jewish people are going to come to faith in Jesus in the tribulation. We we always talk about it from the negative side, saying only a third is going to get saved. Hey, a third is going to find Jesus. 
That's awesome. But that third are going to be maligned not only by all those who hate the Lord, not only by rebellious mankind, but by other rebellious Jews. And that's what verse 5 is telling us. Your brothers who hate you, who exclude you for my name's sake, have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy. And it's tongue-in-cheek and it's, and it's negative. But they will be put to shame. And then verse 6, now note this. Verse 6, a voice of uproar from the city. A voice from the temple. The voice of the Lord who is rendering recompense to, note this, to His enemies. It's ironic to me that we happen to be in Isaiah 66, verse 6. Now, I'm not trying to be all weird and mysterious on you. But Isaiah said, now think about this. Isaiah 66, verse 6 talks about a voice of uproar in the city. Talks about the voice of the Lord booming out of the temple. I am going to recompense all my enemies. And we know in that tribulation period that 666 is what? The number of? The beast. Man. Antichrist. You're all right. The number of the beast that the world so fears. And John comes along in Revelation 13, verse 8 and says, figure it out. It's just the number of man. The indication is that Antichrist will be a human being. Will be a man. The 666 is just that continuing six that never quite gets to completion, never comes to the seven. Seven, the, the number of completion. 666 and repeating is someone who never is complete because they never come to Jesus. It's the picture of man without Christ. Man with Christ becomes seven. But what's described in verse 6 of Isaiah 66 is the disastrous result of man's rebellion. What happens when man doesn't ever become complete in Christ? What happens? A voice of uproar from the city, a voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord who is rendering recompense to his enemies. Not to Israel, not to his own people, but to his enemies here. Now I was asked this on Sunday. Again, I've been asked this many times recently. It's interesting to me. Do you think we'll go through the tribulation? Thank you. And if you're not sure, there's a a teaching from back, and I think it was just before we started Isaiah, back in November. It's on the website, Why I Believe in a Pre-Tribulation Rapture. And I think there's about 72 points in that teaching of why the Bible teaches this very clearly. And I believe it absolutely. I don't, I, you know, I'm at the point in my life now, after having studied these things for a while, I don't even look at the pre-tribulation rapture as one of the options. I don't think there are any other options. I, I don't personally think there are. And we can throw them all out and say, well, there's this, well, what about that one? When you've got to consider this, I don't think so. I've considered them all, and that's the only one that biblically fits if you take the Scripture literally. And so, no, we're not going to go through the tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 knocks it out of the park. God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the same couple who asked me this question Sunday followed it up with this question. But will things get harder for us before Jesus calls us home? To which I reply, probably. I wouldn't be surprised. It has already started. And it has already gotten harder for many believers around the world. I think, gang, it's entirely likely that the slim amount of true persecution that we feel right here in this church on North Whidbey Island is just the beginning. That we will feel a lot more. But it won't be the wrath of God. It will be the wrath of Satan. It will be the anger of the enemy. It will be the frustration of evil in the world, sick and tired of the church, which we see a lot. 
We could feel a lot more struggle and stress and strain before it's all said and done. But remember this always, no matter what happens. If you have been saved by grace, you are not destined for wrath. Now, back in verse 6, there's an uproar in the city. The city is Jerusalem. And there's a voice from the temple. Which temple? I'll answer that. The voice is the Lord's. Now, this prophecy has had uh, initial fulfillment. Let's put it this way, at least twice. We know in 586 B.C., for the people in Isaiah's day, a hundred years after Isaiah, that the temple would burn to the ground, that there would be a voice of uproar from the city, a voice of tumult, voice from the temple, the voice of the Lord. However, in 586 B.C., the Lord was allowing the enemies of His people to come in and take His people to captivity. So you can't really say the voice of the Lord who's rendering recompense to His enemies, because He wasn't in 586 B.C. He was actually reckoning discipline to His children. Okay, well, the next opportunity. A.D. 70, the temple burned to the ground again. A tumult in the city, right? The voice of the Lord rendering recompense to His enemies? No. No, it was the Lord driving out His people via Rome who were enemies of the Lord, but they weren't the ones getting hit. So the verse doesn't really work there. I believe verse 6 is talking about the tribulation temple. I think we're in that point and tracking this straight through Isaiah 65 and 66 we've already talked about we're in this place where God is talking through the prophet of the end of things that happen at the end of the end the end of this age as we know it and the lead up into the next age and the age to come after that what are you talking about Rick? the millennial kingdom is the next age right? new heavens, new earth, new Jerusalem is the age after that And he's already been talking about these things. And now he turns to his people Israel. And he says, I know it's hard. I know your enemies have been fierce. But I am going to recompense them. There will be a voice of uproar from the city. A voice from the temple. The voice of the Lord. And I am going to render recompense to my enemies at that time. And that, I believe, will be the full fulfillment when the voice of Jesus calls forth judgment at the end of the tribulation. Now suddenly, in the middle of this dire warning, the Lord pauses. In comfort, He speaks to His people. Remember, He's comforting Israel from chapter 40 through chapter 66. Comfort. Oh, comfort my people, Israel. And so to do it, He begins in verse 7 to take them across 2,700 years in three verses, which we did on Sunday. I hope it didn't feel like 2,700 years. But we did this on Sunday. Verse 7, Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she gave birth to a boy. That was the peaceful delivery. The delivery of Jesus Christ. The boy is Jesus. It was a prophecy of Isaiah of what would be happening. That Jesus was going to be born in peace. And quiet. Literally before the horrific tumult and the painful labor that Israel would experience after that, Verse 8, who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day? Can a nation be brought forth all at once? As soon as Zion travailed, she also brought forth her sons. Verse 8, a painful delivery. The birth of Eretz Israel, the state of Israel. When was that? Excellent. I got 19... May 14... 1948. Good. All right. You keep that date in mind. It's important. And finally, we come to the promised deliverance. Once he has brought forth delivery, birthed the nation, he doesn't just leave the nation. Verse 9, shall I bring to the point of birth and not give delivery? Says the Lord. 
Or shall I who gives delivery shut the womb, says your God? The promised deliverance, the salvation of Israel that is yet to come. I will deliver my people is the indication of that verse. So the Lord starts in verse 7 with Jesus. And then 8 and 9 goes to the Jewish people, the birth of the nation. Verse 9 telling the people, I am going to deliver you. Why does he start with Jesus? Why jump back in the middle of all this to start with Jesus and then jump ahead to their deliverance? Because their deliverance is by Jesus. Their deliverance is because of Jesus. I've said many times, let me reaffirm this, it is faith in Jesus Christ that brings a person to salvation. And it will be faith in Jesus Christ that brings the Jewish people to salvation as well. So it's a hopeful prophecy. That's number three in our, in our uh, outline here. A hopeful prophecy. Even though His own people did not receive Him, John 1 verse 11 tells us, He still promised their deliverance and to prove He'd follow through the nation was born in a day. So May 14, 1948, if is proof positive, in our time, God keeps His promises. That's why I love that date so much. So the nation of Israel was not born to be left without deliverance in the same way, by the way, we're not born again to go through tribulation. We are born again for deliverance. Verse 10, Be joyful with Jerusalem and rejoice for her, all you who love her. Which includes me. Hope it includes you. Be exceedingly glad with her, all you who mourn over her. That you may nurse and be satisfied with her comforting breasts. That you may suck and be delighted with her bountiful bosom. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I extend peace to her like a river, and the glory of the nations like an overflowing stream. And you will be nursed, and you will be carried on the hip and fondled or bounced on the knees. As one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, and you will be comforted in Jerusalem. Point number four. A heart like a mother. A heart like a mother. God here proclaims that there are those who love Jerusalem. Those who mourn over Jerusalem. In the same way that an infant would cry out and long for mother's milk. Little baby who doesn't know much besides, you know, sleeping and filling a diaper and eating. And they call it rooting. Your mother, you mothers know this. The, the child will start to root. They just start to go, <laughs> you know, looking for, where's dinner? I need dinner. And God says, those who love Jerusalem are like that. You're like infants who are just longing to be fed, longing to be nursed, longing to be held in that warm embrace that only a mother has, longing the comfort for the comfort that a mother brings. Now, this is not politically correct. I know you're shocked. (laughs) But it is biblically correct. God has always and only described Himself as masculine. Perhaps for reasons we have yet to fully understand. I think we could go through a whole litany of reasons why is He in the masculine and why is He projected that way and why being God who is spiritual and not flesh like us, why is it always He? God the Father. God the Son. Even God the Holy Spirit is referred to as He. Never She. Never in Scripture is God referred to in the feminine. And there are a lot of people right now in the Christian faith who are challenging that, 
who are trying to underline, undermine Scripture, try to say, well, let's just take out all the he's and, and everything and just refer to God as, as uh, asexual. You know, let's just not say he, or let's say she sometimes and he other times. And it is devastating to truth, at least to people's understanding of truth. I guess you can't really devastate truth, it will always stand. But devastating to people's understanding. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit always wear the masculine personal pronoun he. Alright? What about this? He describes himself like mama. Okay, hang on, I'll get there. But there's another question people will ask. In fact, I heard a teaching by a very, very respected pastor. One that I appreciate and have listened to a lot. And I'm not going to name. But a teaching talking about the mother heart of Father God. And at first I listened to this going, wow, that's, that's, so, that's so interesting. And, and unique. What a great perspective. But the more I looked at it, and finally I ended up doing a word study because he, he based this all around El Shaddai. El Shaddai. And some will ask the question, and you may get hit with this, maybe not, not a lot of people even realize this, but the name El Shaddai, some have taken the name that God first spoke to Abram. It's the first mention of El Shaddai in the Bible, Genesis 17, verse 1. God is talking to Abram, and he refers to himself as El Shaddai. Some have taken the name El Shaddai, God Almighty, and have misrepresented it, or at least misunderstood it. And their misunderstanding mischaracterizes our masculine God. And it's important to get this. Genesis 17.1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. And people will say, God Almighty, El Shaddai, is both masculine and feminine. El, God, the masculine form of God. El, the name that's used for God throughout Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 2, where he goes back and gets more specific about creation, he's Yahweh. But Genesis chapter 1, it's El. God, El, created the heavens and the earth. Masculine, powerful God. Shaddai. Some have tried to say that Shaddai comes from the Hebrew word Shad, meaning breast. El Shaddai. God and breast. Male, female. Masculine, feminine. And people have talked about this. So yeah, that, that, well, that's what it means. So there you see, if there's the mother heart of God. The problem is the Hebrew root word for Shaddai is not Shad. It's Shaddad. And we, this is the problem with doing... with bringing up Hebrew words. And I know I do that a lot. But I'll tell you what, when I share an actual Hebrew word, I check and double check and recheck to make sure I'm giving you the right word. Because it's very easy to mess these things up. It's not Shad, it's Shadad. Shadad means to devastate and to deal violently with. Shadad is from the early Akkadian word, they believe, meaning mountain. God Almighty. God the mountain. God who is awesome. God who deals violently with those who rebel against Him. That's El Shaddai. God Almighty is the right translation, not God the breast. (laughs) And here's the problem. People confuse. They say, well, yeah, but Shad and Shaddad are are similar, aren't they? Yeah, so are Basque and Basket. (laughs) But my wife didn't basket in the sun today. 
Okay? You see the difference? So you got to know what the right word is and what the right root word is. And the root word of El Shaddai is Shaddad, which means to devastate. It means awesome. To even deal violently with, if necessary. That is El Shaddai. So let me say this very clearly. Any representation of God as feminine mischaracterizes the God of Holy Scripture, which is why I had a problem with the book The Shack. And I talked about this a long time ago when it came out, and you know, it, it's still floating around out there. Some people loved it. And I'm not here to debate that, except to say that three, two, two of the three characters of the Trinity in the shack are represented in the female, which is a misrepresentation of the God of Scripture. I don't care how comforting it seems. God would not, God never has presented himself as a mama in the kitchen or as a wispy Asian woman as is described in the shack. It's not the God of Scripture. And anytime I hear someone characterizing the God of Scripture in ways that He has never characterized Himself, it concerns me a bit. That being said, here's the main thing we need to understand about our God. He does not take after man or woman. We take after Him. We come from Him, not He from us. Which is why it says very clearly at the very beginning, Genesis 1.27, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. Well, so Rick, you're saying there's some female in God after all? No. I'm saying, ladies, your perfect example is Jesus. Just as men, your perfect example for living is Jesus. But Jesus wasn't feminine. Although, He sure did love the kids. Jesus wasn't feminine, but He sure did weep when Lazarus died. When we're talking about characteristics, God is the originator of all of the good characteristics in all of us. Okay, I'm not as tender as my wife. She got the tenderness. Hannah last night. I shouldn't tell this on my daughter, but I'm going to. (laughs) She was getting ready to go back to Whitworth and she was packing boxes and she pulled a box out of the garage and stuck it in her room and I'm upstairs studying and I hear this shriek. And she comes flying up the stairs a thousand miles an hour and she couldn't even talk. She was so upset. What? What is it? Calm down. What is it? Spider! Apparently this little wood spider crawled out of a box and ran across her hand. <laughs> she just totally lost it. Okay, so here, here's why I tell this. True story. <laughs> you got dad and you got mom. And Cheryl's immediately going, oh, Hannah, I'm so sorry. And I'm like, what? It's a spider. Are you kidding me? Hannah, it's that big. You're like that big. It's that big. Come on. I got no compassion, no tenderness whatsoever. I can't even believe she's this upset. And Cheryl's going, Rick, a spider ran across her hand. I'm like, yeah. Just take care of it, you know. The character traits of men and women, all the good traits, they come from God. And so, yes, God has the ability to comfort His people like a mother. And that's the key in the passage. As one whom His mother comforts, so I will comfort you. Okay, as one who is not 
I'm one who becomes your mama. He says, like a mother comforts you, I comfort you. He's he's just giving an example from something we would understand how tender and comforting and compassionate and caring He truly is. He doesn't say He is a mother. He says He will treat them as a mother. Remember, God is the originator of the tender heart. No woman started with it. God did. And blessed woman with that characteristic. And again, we see it in Jesus. Oh, when He comes up to Jerusalem, you've heard the verse many times, He wept. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Is Jesus saying I'm a girl? No. He's giving a picture, an example of tenderness, of compassion, of protection, like a hen with her chicks. And of course, Jerusalem was unwilling. So a heart like a mother. It's interesting, immediately he goes into verse 14 and talks about number 5 in your outline, the hand of a father. Then you will see this, and your heart will be glad, and your bones will flourish like the new grass, and the hand of the Lord will be made known to His servants, but He will be indignant toward His enemies. The hand of God Almighty, El Shaddai, mighty to save Israel, is going to save Israel and He's going to be furious with His enemies. The Hebrew word for indignant there is za'am and it means a furious anger. Livid with His enemies. And I never liked it when my father's anger got connected to his hand. (laughs) Yeah, growing up, these hands of my dad, my dad has some pretty big hands. And growing up, these hands could sweep me off the carpet playfully. These hands could tuck me in, you know, tenderly, tickling me. These same hands were brilliant at fixing my toys when they were broken. But these hands, when Dad was furious with me, could inflict some serious behavioral change on my backside. And I learned... He could knock me into next righteousness, I'll tell you. Spank the rebellion right out of me. My father's hands. My temporary father's hands. He's still alive, but he's my temporary father. I have an everlasting father. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, right? Who's the everlasting father? Jesus is. What? What? Well, I thought there was God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, but in Isaiah 9, 6, look it up, later, (laughs) God the Son is called Wonderful, Counselor, Everlasting Father. That's Jesus. And so the Everlasting Father, the hand of the Father, is Jesus. The hand that is mighty to save, but also expressing furious anger at her enemies. Jesus comes along and watch this. Verse 15, For behold, the Lord will come in fire. That Lord is Jesus. Don't misunderstand Jesus of the New Testament, God of the Old Testament, same God. He will come in fire and His chariots like the whirlwind to render His anger with fury. Zaham and His rebuke with flames of fire. Verse 16, For the Lord will execute judgment by fire, and by His sword on all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. I read that verse. and You know I'm a nut about the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I just think it's a cool story. And there's a great scene in 
I think it's the second movie, where Gimli the dwarf and uh, Legolas, thank you, the uh, elf, are in battle, and they're calling out to each other the number of kills. You know, 17, 17, that's not fair! Right? You know, and so they're going back and forth, 32, 33, 30, you know. And it's really kind of humorous if it wasn't the fact that they were killing people. And that came to mind as I read, those slain by the Lord will be many. Now that's, that should make you tremble. Those slain by the Lord. There's going to be a slaughter when Jesus comes. And He's going to do it. And it's not without warning. Oh no, no. It's not without warning at all. As a matter of fact, Jude 14, the very first prophecy, remember? Back in the seventh generation from Adam, Jude tells us that Enoch prophesied, Behold, the Lord came with many thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment upon all, to convict all the ungodly of all their ungodly deeds which they have done in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. And Enoch was telling people that when Adam was still alive. If you track their genealogies, which is just really cool to do. From the very earliest days, God has said a day of judgment will come when I will bring forth my strictest and most harsh retribution on ungodliness in the world. I'm going to do this. I'm letting you know now. Why, Lord? Because I love you too much for it to be you. I will slay many who rebel against me. Don't be one of them. Don't be one of those who will be slain. Verse 15 through 17 He's dealing with, he's talking about more of these people. This this false religion. Verse 17, he says, Those who sanctify and purify themselves go to the gardens, following one in the center, who eat swine's flesh, detestable things, and mice. Mm. (laughs) Little mice nugget, I guess. They will come to an end altogether, declares the Lord. And he's talking about the following, the going, the sanctification and purification in the gardens. It's pagan ritual again. And eating mice. Pagan ritual. Doing these detestable things. Eating swine's flesh. Don't worry about your bacon. (laughs) He's talking about, you know, this pagan ritual that's all bound up in these things. Verse 17 is like verse 3 earlier in the chapter, referring to those pagan rites that the people of Israel were drawn to in Isaiah's day. You know what's scary? People are being drawn to pagan ritual all over the place again. People in our one-time Christian nation are being attracted to pagan things like never before. That's scary stuff. It's going on all around, especially up here in the Northwest. Very spiritual place to live. Not Christian, (laughs) but very spiritual. He talks about, though, I think it's interesting, those who sanctify and purify themselves to go to the gardens. That caught me off guard because the first half of the verse you might start to think, oh good, those who sanctify and purify themselves. Those are the good guys, right? No. These are the pagans. These are those of Israel who are going through pagan sanctification, pagan purification. And we've got to recognize that it's bogus. It is bogus sanctification without the Spirit of the living God to sanctify us. It is bogus and false purification without the blood of Christ to purify us. Only His blood purifies. Only His Spirit sanctifies. But Israel's trying to chase it down in other places. 
And so judgment comes. And who is the Lord who executes this judgment? It is again unquestionably Jesus. He said so, John 5.22, For not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son. So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. In verse 27 of John chapter 5, God gave Him, the Father gave the Son, authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. I think that's interesting. Why does Jesus have the right to effect judgment? Because as a man Himself, He understands, or at least we see that He gets us. He has the right to judge. He earned it. As opposed to God just judging from the heavens, which God can do. Has every right to do. But God says, you know what, I'm going to give it to Jesus so that people on earth can't say, well, you never really understood us. Now the one executing judgment fully understood what it was like to be human because He was one. In the mighty and climactic return of Jesus, His judgment will be swift, His judgment will be fiery, His judgment will be thorough, and there ain't going to be no mama there to comfort on that day. Now we read that, you may say, how is this comforting? (laughs) It's comforting to the righteous remnant of Israel. It's comforting to those who are so maligned, and at that time, those who have been so beaten up, to know that when their God comes back, He comes to make things right. Doesn't that comfort you just a little bit? To know He's going to make things right. I get so tired sometimes of how wrong things are. My heart sinks every time the church in the world is maligned. I just go, man. Every time there's a news story that that touts how foolish and silly and stupid Christians are, I just go, Lord, can you just make that right? He's going to make it right. And there will be a time when all people recognize that Jesus is, was, and forever will be the Messiah, the Emmanuel, God among us, the Christ. Jesus is going to set all things right. Verse 18, For I know their works and their thoughts. The time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see My glory. Verse 19, I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations. Now stop right there. Two critical questions that inform us what's going on here and when this is going on at the end of Isaiah's prophecy. Question number one, who are them? Who are them? Okay, the them in verse 19, I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations. Who are them? Is question number one. Question number two, what's the sign? I'm going to set a sign. We're going to have to wait and deal with the sign on Sunday. But let's look at the other question. Who are them in these verses? Look at verse 22. It tells us who them are. And it's not the church. Verse 22 reads, For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so your offspring and your name will endure. Whose name? Whose offspring? Israel! Who's he talking to here? Israel! It's their offspring. It's their endurance. And God says, I'm going to send, back in verse 19, survivors from them. Survivors from Israel. Why are you getting excited, Brick? He's talking about the endurance of Israel. God is talking to Israel about their own descendants. 
their own people. He's speaking now of the generation of that righteous remnant of Israel. So the priests and the Levites of verse 21 are still Jewish. But they come from a very special group of Jews. A group the Bible tells us will be used by the Lord during and at the end of the tribulation. This is why I get excited. you got to watch this. Note this thing here. Revelation 14 verse 1 tells us, I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion, and with Him 144,000, having His name and the name of His Father written on their foreheads. 144,000 on Mount Zion standing there with Jesus. Who are these guys? We already know. Revelation chapter 7. 12,000 from every one of the 12 tribes of Israel. There are 144,000 Jewish people. It's not the Jehovah's Witnesses. Never was. And I'm I'm sorry to say, Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that the 144,000 is them, well, there have already been more than 144,000 Jehovah's Witnesses, which means Jehovah's Witnesses today are out of luck. the way it works. 144,000 Jews, and Revelation 7 tells us they are sent out. Jewish evangelists. During the tribulation, they are preaching the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the nations. Now again, think this through. The Bible tells us a third of Israel will be brought through the tribulation. They will, be, they will survive the fires of that time. Zechariah 13, verse 9. And that whole remnant of Israel... It must be, will be larger than the 144,000. The 144,000 are a select group of the larger righteous remnant of Israel, those who come to faith in Jesus, who live for Him. 144,000 of them are missionaries. The rest are still believers and are part of that third that will be saved. Are you with me? Okay. But they have a very special mission, not only during the tribulation, but at the end of the tribulation as well. Look at verse 19 again. I will set a sign among them and will send survivors from them to the nations. Tarshish, put, which is actually pull, P-U-L, Lud, Meshech, Tubal, and Javan to their distant coastlands that have neither heard my fame nor seen my glory and they will declare my glory among the nations. The point is this. North, south, east, and west, God's Jewish evangelists are sent out to do two things. Number one, they will glorify God with the gospel of Jesus during the tribulation. They will bring glory to God. Israel, and this is, I love this, Israel and not the church. Now, I love the church. And we are called right now to bring the gospel. But Israel and not the church is going to fulfill God's original intent for Israel. We don't take it over And suddenly it's the church who declare His glory among the nations. Israel, who were told to do that in the first place, the 144,000 are now going to do it. Do what? Isaiah 43, 21. The people who I formed for myself will declare my praise. They're going to do it. But at the end of that tribulation, the special mission of the 144,000 will be they will not only glorify God, number two, they will gather the rest of the surviving remnant from all the nations. They get to be sent out. They've already proclaimed the gospel. Jesus has come. And now they're sent out to collect, to gather all of those Jews who survived the tribulation with faith in Jesus, those who are scattered among the nations. Check this out. Isaiah 66, verse 20. 
Then they shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering to the Lord on horses, in chariots, in litters, on mules, on camels. To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the sons of Israel bring their grain offering in a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. Number six in your outline. A holy offering. A holy offering. And whether on horses, chariots, litters, mules, or camels, by any means of travel... Get my people, God says, to the 144,000. Get them and bring them home. Go get them. The band Train had a great song they wrote years ago. I don't know that it was ever a hit, but it was one of my favorite songs. It was a song called Get To Me. And I love the lyrics. And they were reminded, I was reminded of this in, in verse 20, how God's just saying, you know, by any means necessary, get them transported home. Train writes... Well, an airplane's faster than a Cadillac and a whole lot smoother than a camel's back, but I don't care how you get to me, just get to me. Parasail or first-class mail, get on the back of a nightingale. Pro-keds, mopeds, take a limousine instead. They ain't cheap, but they're easy to find. Get on the highway, point yourself my way, take a roller coaster that comes in sideways, just get to me. And that's the intent of verse 20. He lists all these modes of transportation, horses, chariots, litters, mules, camels... And by the way, notice that none of that transportation is gas or electric powered. Well, that's just because Isaiah didn't know about that stuff, right? (laughs) At the end of the tribulation, personally, I don't think any modern transportation is going to be up and running. The world's going to change radically, gang. There are things that will happen in that seven-year period. In fact, there are things that are going to happen before that seven-year period that could knock out electricity for good. I'm not telling you that to scare you. But tremble at His word. There are no vehicles other than just natural vehicles mentioned here in the verse, and I think that's on purpose. Why is the remnant compared to a grain offering here? They shall bring all your brethren from the nations, verse 20, as a grain offering. Now this is very significant. Leviticus chapter 2 describes the grain offering. It's also some translations say a meat offering, but it's not meat. I think it's the King James says a meat offering, and it's just an old use of the word. It's not meat, it's grain. And it's very specifically described in Leviticus chapter 2, a grain offering that the people of Israel would bring to the Lord. It was not burned up in fire. It was broken before the Lord. It was eaten among the priests and the Levites. But it was of grain. And Andrew Bonar in his fantastic commentary on Leviticus, just called Leviticus, said the following. The grain offering represents the offerer's person and property, his own body and possessions. When he had, by the burnt offering, talked about in Leviticus chapter 1, when he had, by the burnt offering, obtained full acceptance for his soul, he comes next to give up his whole substance to the Lord who had redeemed him. The mercies of God constrain him to give up all he has to the Lord. What is he saying? The saved remnant of Israel will be like a grain offering. In that, in their salvation they will feel constrained to just give themselves wholeheartedly to the Lord. I call that constraint of grace. If you know grace, you're under that constraint. 
The constraint of grace. What is the constraint of grace? The recognition that God has so saved me, so graced my life, I can't do anything but serve Him. I have to serve Him. I have to give my life to Him. Why? Because of the constraint of grace. I will never come close to repaying what He's done for me. And so I am just constrained by His amazing grace, His incredible mercy, His massive love to say, Lord, then whatever You want, I will do. I give You my whole self. It's the grain offering. The grain offering. Giving up the whole self to the Lord. But there's more to this picture of the grain offering. Leviticus chapter 2, verse 12 says that the grain offering is an offering, listen, is an offering of first fruits. You shall bring them to the Lord, but they shall not ascend for a soothing aroma on the altar. The grain offering was an offering of first fruits. Look at verse 20. They shall bring all your brethren from all the nations as a grain offering. Okay, so why would the remnant of Israel be compared to a first fruits offering? Because that's what they are. They are the first fruits to the Jew first and also to the Greek. A first fruit offering to the Lord. And by the way, Revelation 14 verse 4, speaking of the 144,000, has this to say, These are the ones who followed the Lamb wherever He goes. They have been purchased from among men as first fruits to God and to the Lamb. That's why it's a grain offering. That's why God uses this comparison, because the righteous remnant of Israel are a first fruits offering to the Lord. That He kept them, He caused them to endure throughout all history, all time, down to the very end, to prove that the people He started with are the people who would be the first fruits offering. Marvelous. All that said, number seven, we come to the heartfelt conclusion of the book of Isaiah. Verse 23. And it shall be from new moon to new moon, and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all mankind will come to bow down before me, says the Lord. And that picture of the millennial kingdom is really cool. Gang, the millennial kingdom is going to have a very Jewish feel to it. We're going to keep all the Jewish traditions, the fun ones, the good ones. The new moon celebrations. The moon will rise in the sky during the, the, the millennial kingdom and we will celebrate as the Jewish people always used to. And he says Sabbath to Sabbath. We're going to have weekly Sabbath rest. Real Sabbath. Not like pretentious Sabbath or religious Sabbath or, or the day off that you try and squeak in at the end of a busy week. We're going to understand Sabbath like we never have before because Jesus will be here. The Lord of the Sabbath. And we will... We will enjoy Zechariah 14, verse 16, the Feast of Tabernacles, which to me seems like the most fun of all the Jewish feasts. They camp out, you know, and they offer the first fruits. The Feast of Tabernacles. All these things are going to be going on during that millennial kingdom. But here, listen, here is the heartfelt conclusion of the book of Isaiah. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm will not die, and their fire will not be quenched, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. That's how he ends. That's the heartfelt conclusion? Jesus quoted this verse directly. 
He said in Mark chapter 9, verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell, into unquenchable fire. In verse 45 of Mark 9, he says, if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet to be cast into hell. Jesus said in Mark 9.47, if your eye causes you to stumble, throw it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Where, verse 48, he quotes Isaiah, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Did Jesus believe in hell? You better believe he did. No question about it. And so we come to the heartfelt conclusion of Isaiah. Rick, how is this heartfelt? How can he end this way? And my answer is, how can he not? I told you before, the Hebrew Bible repeats verse 23 after verse 24. Brings it back around again to give it a little lift at the end. But that is not how God left it. And ever since I shared that with you, I've been praying, how are we to end this book, Lord? And and I came down yesterday, and I was reading verse 24, and they will be in an abhorrence to all mankind, period, end of the story, end of this magnificent prophecy, in a very frightening place. And I said, Lord, what do I do with this? And I'll tell you what he told me. He said, Rick, let it end as it ends. I heard that as, as clear as day. Let it end as it ends. But, but Lord, it, let it end as it ends. We need to understand that God feels more deeply in His heart than any of us can even possibly imagine. God feels the pain of lost people. Think about it in your life. How many people can you count that you know who right now would go to hell if Jesus came back tonight? Five? Ten? Do you know thirty? Do you personally have a relationship, superficial or otherwise, with fifty people? God knows every single person in all history who has rejected Him who will go to hell. We have no idea the depth of pain in the heart of God when He considers lost people. And so we have to let it end as it ends. The final chapters of this book of prophecy, yes, they include wonderful promises. The endurance of Israel, joy in Jerusalem, the glorious kingdom, the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, and even the promise that the former things will be forgotten by us. But as Isaiah penned these last words by the inspiration of the Spirit of Christ Jesus Himself, he penned it as a serious warning if perhaps someone might hear these words and be saved. Let it end as it ends. Father, the way you chose to close this prophecy does cause me to tremble. It's a very serious thing. So serious, Lord, then rather than leave leave us with a, a soothing line or a comforting image, you leave us to consider the most serious reality of eternity. Thank you. Thank you for not leaving us in some empty-headed, happy place. But instead, Lord Jesus, to bring us right to the heart of the matter. We know You're coming. You said from the very beginning exactly what would happen to those who rebel against You. And so we pray now desperately for the lost. 
And we pray, Holy Spirit, please plead with them. If they might be saved from the unquenchable fire of hell, if we might be used by you, Lord, salt our words. Teach us how to speak the truth in love. Make us bold with the gospel of Jesus as time runs out. Help us not to sit back and just make assumption. Oh, Father, compel us to do it. Constrain us by your grace to be evangelists of the gospel of Jesus. Because we know how it ends. And we praise your name and we tremble before you. And we say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. In Jesus' name, amen.